And tonight our text is the first four verses. So when you get there, let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. Please keep praying for Joanne Tomkowitz and Ed Tomkowitz, Joanne specifically for her health. Uh, We would really appreciate that. All right, Jeremiah chapter 4, four verses. This is God's response to the prayer that is laid out in the end of chapter 3. And God says, If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove, and thou shalt swear, the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. And the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. May God bless his word. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that were written aforetime uh, to the people, the Jews, so that we might learn in their relationship and, and their response to you, that we might learn your ways, that we might have a desire to, uh, to walk in a covenant relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you for it. We ask your blessing tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. And you may God will put away thine abominations. That's, so there's a condition. You know, you really want to return to me. You are going to, uh, you're going to need to get serious. You are going to need to demonstrate that, um, you know, that you're serious about it and that you want to return to me. Verse 2, and thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth. That, that phrase, as Yahweh lives, is the, the literal Hebrew there. Uh, is is a phrase that was a common formula, if we could say that, of ancient Israel that um, that would be used often, and it was never intended to just be an empty saying. It was something that they would say to demonstrate that they were sincerely, you know, honoring God as Yahweh lives. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments was that they were not to take the Lord's name in vain. And, and, and the idea of that is they were not to take God's word lightly. When they used the word Yahweh, they needed to, to not only use it with respect, but they, in a sense they were really acknowledging the sovereignty and the control of Yahweh over their life. And that went with that phrase. And the re, one of the reasons Jeremiah is using it is Remember, he just gave the maybe just gave the formula for repentance in in twenty chapter three verses twenty two b to twenty five. He just laid out much like some of the psalms, like Psalm fifty one. You know, Psalm fifty one is probably one of the best confessional prayers. In other words, if you uh, wanna, if you can't find the words to tell God you're sorry about something, you go to Psalm fifty one. That's where David got right with God when he committed all his sin and cover up with Bathsheba and Uriah and all that. And it is a heartfelt cry to God. Uh, and, and so many times I'll, I'll go and you use that phrase, I'll use that prayer. And, and that's good. And that's kind of like what Jeremiah 3, the last 
section of that was for. It's like, okay, you, you're having trouble finding the words to say, here's what I'm looking for. And the words were so chosen, chosen that they would properly describe a sorrowful, repentant heart. Now, can they be prayed without having a sorrowful, repentant heart? Of course. You know, how many people use just vain repetition and they just spout off prayers, which are never meant, you know, at least by God, prayers, even the Lord's Prayer was not given to just, you know, vainly repeat it as some potion or whatever. But it's it's to give us words so that we can communicate to the Savior. And that's exactly uh, what he is saying. Thou shalt swear... The Lord liveth in truth and judgment and righteousness. Those three things are often found throughout the the prophets. Uh, Truth, judgment, and righteousness. And the nation shall bless themselves in him. And the idea of that, the nation shall... When Israel gets right with God properly, and they put away their idols properly, then that would be a witness to the world around them, and even the pagan nations would glorify God. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. It is much like, I'm thinking of uh, Matthew five sixteen. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may what? See your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Philippians 1.27, Paul said something similar. He said to the, the Philippians, he said, let only let your conversation, let your life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And then he said, so that whether I come and see you or not, I may hear of your affairs. He's saying, in other words, listen, live so your life is consistent with the gospel. And then I'm going to hear about it. Not from them, but from the people that witness them. And that's, that's how we glorify God. People are looking at us. People are judging our God based on our passion or lack of passion for Him. And then it says at the end here, And the nation shall bless themselves in Him, and in Him shall they glory and then in verse 3, trying to move along here, 4-3. Wait a minute, let me back up. I missed, the, uh, at the end of verse 1 is what I'm looking for. If thou wilt return, uh, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me, and if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove. That's what I want to talk about for a minute. Then thou shalt not remove. In other words, he's saying, if you, if you really mean business, you're going to put away the abominations, you're going to get rid of the idols, and you're not going to waver. Now let's go back to that letter we read from Paul um, with the Corinthians. You know, Paul was writing that letter, and, and there was remember he said, I, I, you know, I might regret this, because he knew that he could hurt them. Anytime you confront someone lovingly and you're addressing their sin, there's always the possibility that they're going to get offended. And that happens too many times. But remember, remember that verse in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Contrast that with the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. 
See, sometimes you and I would think, well, I'd rather have people say nice things to me than say negative things to me. But that verse is saying just the opposite. If there's hard things that need to be said to us and the appropriate people say them to us, they are wounds, but they're faithful. Compare that to somebody that just says nice things to you, but but is talking about you behind their back and that kind of thing. The kisses of an enemy, what are they? They are deceitful. God is lovingly confronting these people. But he doesn't just want lip service. He wants heart service. In fact, um, what Isaiah said about the Jews, Israel, uh, is so true as well. In Isaiah 29 and verse 13, in fact, Jesus quoted this in Mark 7 and verse 6. Here's what Jesus said. He answered and said unto them, he's talking to the Jews, Well hath Isaiah, Isaiah's prophesied to you of you hypocrites, as, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that was Judah. That was the people that he was addressing, that Jeremiah is addressing. And he just wanted them to demonstrate that they meant business. The proof is in the pudding. Some people, when, when you address... You ever get the feeling that somebody that continues to do the wrong thing, uh, and maybe you bring it up to them, and, and this is, again, going back to what I talked about during communion, and they get irritated. And maybe they'll say something like this. Hey, come on, I said I'm sorry. What more can I do? You know, instead of looking at that and saying, okay, maybe I'm not showing the fruit that convinces this person. So whose problem is it? Well, if I'm irritated at them, I need to kind of step back and say, why are they bringing this up in my life so many times? Instead of being reactionary, we need to be willing to change. Change is so very hard. You know, and, and I, I was thinking recently of, I guess it was last week's text. Remember, uh, they were crying from the high, the, the high hills, the, you know, the places where they used to worship their false gods, and they're crying to Jehovah, and, and it, it very well may be a picture. It may be after Josiah's reforms where they destroyed all the altars, but apparently they still kind of went through the motions of their pagan Canaanite worship, but they were crying to God. Remember the contradiction between where they were and what they were saying. Uh, so they apparently they may have very well just stayed in the old patterns of the old ways. It's interesting. You know, we use the phrase ruts. You ever been in a rut? Um, I came across this interesting tidbit, and from researching it, uh, it's, it's, it's just fascinating. I could not find anything that would refute this. It's one of those things like, really? Is this true? So listen to, listen to this article that I came across. The U.S. standard railroad gauge, in other words, when, when you're laying down railroads, the distance between the rails... The standard in the United States is four feet, eight and one half inches. That's an odd number, isn't it? Why did they do that? Well, that's the way they built them in England. And of course, when America started, you know, we had all these people from England coming. And so that's the way they did it. That's the way all the, the, the people knew how to do it. So that's why they did it. Okay, then let's ask, why did the English adopt? I mean, that's a weird measurement, isn't it? Four feet. Eight and one half inches, and and why? So why did England do it? Well, apparently the people who built the pre-railroad tramways 
use that gauge. Oh, okay. Well, then that begs the question, why did they do it? Well, they did it because the people who built the tramways used the same standards and tools they used for building wagons, which were set on a gauge of four feet, eight and a half inches. Oh, okay, I get it. Wait a minute. Why were the wagons built to that scale? Well, because that's the size. Uh, the wheels, uh, other than that, if they used another size, the wheels would not match the old wheel ruts in the roads. Oh, okay. Well, why were the wheel ruts in the road? Who built the old rutted roads? The first long-distance highways in Europe were built by Imperial Rome for the benefit of their legions, and those roads had been in use ever since. And the ruts were first made by the Roman war chariots. Four feet, eight and a half inches was the width of a chariot, which was used to accommodate the, the girth of two large war horses. And that's where it all began. So, you know, the, oh, so it all started with ruts, and then ruts became roads, and then roads became tracks, and that distance has kind of been imprinted, assuming this is true. I mean, that's pretty amazing, and that gives a great illustration of what a rut is like. You know, in a rut, you just, when you get into a rut, <laughs> it's hard to get out. And apparently Israel... You know, they were, they were struggling, and of course, you and I, we know the end of the story in Jeremiah, is though God gave them chance to repent, they never repented. So jump to verse 4, the conditions of true repentance. For, so first we had the meaning of genuine repentance, now we have the conditions. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. We have a bunch of illustrations being used here which Jeremiah will often do, things that these people can relate to. Um, he is about, the next verse he's going to be talking about circumcision. This time he's using agriculture. And I want to just read to you probably the most concise explanation of what Jeremiah is talking about, which gave a lot of insight to me, uh, was from a particular commentator uh, named J.A. Thompson. And he said this, and he made a great summary at the end. He said, the instruction here, break up your fallow ground. So not among thorns. The instruction does not refer to ground that has lain untilled for a long time and has grown hard so that it must be broken up again. The Hebrew verb refer, refers to virgin soil. The command is therefore to break new soil. No easy task on the rocky slopes of Judea. There was a further problem. Tilled ground encouraged the growth of thorns and thistles. It was normal to collect and burn the tender dry thorns after the harvest had been gathered in, but at sowing time, sowing preceded plowing. The farmer scattered his seed over unplowed stubble on the path among the thorns on rocky ground. Remember the, the, two par the parable in Mark and Matthew? The hole was then plowed in. This may seem bad farming to the Western mind, but it was the custom of centuries in Palestine. The fact was that the ground was infested with thorn seeds despite the fire following the previous harvest, and these were all the more abundant because of years of strong growth in good ground. So that explains some of the, you know, what's going on agriculturally because, 
you know, those are farmers who do it our way would not understand that. And then he makes this comment. He said, here's the picture that Jeremiah paints. Judah's own field was so infested with the thorn seed of past evil deeds that her only hope was to reclaim new ground. The whole future was threatened by the legacy of the past, and only a complete and radical new beginning would suffice to save the nation. That is so good. I want to read that again. The whole future was threatened by the legacy of the past. Isn't that good? I love that. Because how many Christians do I know who to this day are stuck in that rut and, again, their whole future is threatened. They have just stagnated. Some have not been to church in years. Why? Well, because they've stagnated by the legacy of the past and only a complete radical new beginning. And that's the idea of the plow up the, fa- the fallow ground. Uh, we need to start new. That's the idea. You know, some, some of God's people just need to start fresh. But you know what? Don't let the legacy, don't let the, um, don't let the future be threatened by the legacy of the past. Again, that picture keeps coming up. And I was even thinking of it recently because I like talking about it because I can relate to it. So I preach to you, you should not be looking in the rearview mirror. And whenever you hear me saying that a lot, it's probably because this guy is looking in the rearview mirror. And it's not a good thing, you know. So, so may you and I start fresh and, and, um, and realize that, that there's, some, there's some ground here. But again, we need, to, we need to start new. We need to set aside the, those abominations. Need to get things out of our life. There is a there is a, a ad campaign. I think it first came out in in this recent Super Bowl. That's when I first had, heard about it, and it's it's supposed to be a religious message. Maybe you've heard it. it. It's it's the the plug word is he gets us. You've heard of that, and they actually have a website, and it starts out Jesus loves us without limits. He gets us. And so I looked on the website and it said, How did the story of a man who taught and practiced unconditional love, peace, and kindness, who spent his life defending the poor and the marginalized? And by the way, if you listen, there's there's some words in here where I, I would stop and say, No, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And this whole ad campaign on the surface sounds really good. It's like, yeah, that's right. But I submit to you when you when you kind of break it apart. And you see the context of, of what's going on in our country today. They're pushing a different meaning. Again, let me read it. How did the story of a man who taught and practiced unconditional love, peace, and kindness, who spent his life defending the poor and the marginalized, a man who even forgave his killers while they executed him unjustly, whose life inspired a radical movement that is still impacting the world thousands of years later, how did this man's story become associated with hatred and oppression for so many people. Now that sounds good, but I, you have to step back and say, wait a minute. Are they talking about, like, would, would they be talking about, like, Jeremiah? Because he's calling sin, sin? Would, would these people here be saying that the people of Judah are the marginalized? Because they, alright, you know, they're worshipping this the Canaanite gods. And then it goes on. This is the love Jesus taught. Selfless love 
that doesn't come with any conditions or require any payment in return. What? Wait a minute. Now, again, it all sounds good, folks, but what is God laying out to Judah and Israel? And what does God say to us? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Was Paul setting some conditions on those Corinthians? He was. He was telling them, you need to repent. You need to be sorry. And that means you need to change your actions. This idea of unconditional, which is what they're, they're pushing here, would not fit in with Jeremiah's message. Listen, as an adulterous spouse cannot continue to hold on to their illicit lover and genuinely return to their marriage partner, so Israel could not return to God but continue to embrace the idolatry that they embraced. I love that picture. I've read that in the comments here commentator and that's what he's talking about right you think about that you think about a a husband that has been unfaithful to his wife and his his wife you know he comes to apologize to his wife i am so sorry hon and i want to make things up i want to make things work and she's glad to hear that great you want to make things work and she says okay but i'm gonna put some conditions down wait a minute what do you mean conditions you're supposed to love me. Is she wrong for putting conditions down? I The condition is that you leave your lover, then I'll know you're serious about it. Would she be wrong to insist that he do that? Of course not. And so, the, you know, God is not wrong in saying, you know, there's some conditions here. And by the way, if you want to experience the love of Jesus Christ, he doesn't force his love on everyone. And folks, there's some day when he's going to say to many people, depart from me, I never knew you. So the condition is, he'll take anyone, whosoever will, may come, but they need to acknowledge their sinners, repent of their sins, and then he'll save them. So, again, there, there is a, a real challenge there. So verse 6, or verse 4, excuse me, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. And by the way, Paul picks up on this idea uh, we already talked about this this morning in our Bible, uh, maybe morning service, actually. Circumcision was a big, uh, you know, religious ritual and rite for the Jews. And it had to do with a physical surgery of a physical part of the body. And God is now talking, you know, theoretically or, or um, spiritually. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So, you know, this whole I think, the whole idea that Jesus gets us, are you saying that Jesus gets us and he's okay with our homosexuality and our transgenderism and all? Are you saying that? Because that's not the message of the Bible. Yes, he loves us. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for those things. But you got to repent and turn to the Lord to receive that love. Yeah, he gets us. He gets that we're all sinners. Some people, I heard read this statement as I closed. Some people, some people, I just laid my eyes on this statement. Some people will change when they see the light. Others change only when they feel the heat. Now you look at verse 4, and the Lord is he's putting some heat on them, isn't he? He's, he's, he's making it uncomfortable for them. 
And folks, by the way, if they did not, you know, heed that prayer at the end of chapter 3, and if they did not meet these conditions of genuine repentance, then what was going to happen? He was going to bring judgment. They were going to go into Babylonian captivity, and that's what happens. But, and in a sense, that was how he laid out his fiery judgment. Some people will only will only pay attention when it really affects them. I close with this. I shared this one time. I forget how long ago. Uh, you've heard of a Mercedes-Benz, right? Carl Benz um, was a German automobile maker. And in 1886, he drove his first automobile through the streets of Munich, Germany. Uh, he named his car Mercedes-Benz after his daughter, Mercedes. And um, now this was at a time when most people were doing horse-drawn carriages. And people were angry because the, the Mercedes' car was noisy. It scared children. It scared the horses that were pulling carriages around. And so, pressured by the citizens of Munich, uh, everybody complained. And, and so, they, they established a speed limit for horseless carriages, like the Mercedes-Benz, of 3.5 miles an hour in the city and 7 miles an hour outside. Now, he had made this Mercedes-Benz to, as far as those miles, he had made this Mercedes-Benz to really cover some... I mean, these things were fast, according to the standards of those days. But when they made those laws, he, he was thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to sell anything. I can't have this. Nobody's going to want to buy my... No one's going to want to buy my Mercedes-Benz if they can only go, you know, uh, five miles or can't go over seven miles. It's not going to work. So he had a plan, and I love this. He invited the mayor of the town to come and drive in his Mercedes-Benz. But he had a plan. He had, um, he arranged for a milkman with, a, a, with, his, with his horse to, to park a little ways. He knew where the route was going to be. And, and it was all timed. So the mayor came, got in his car, and he's, he's driving the speed limit, just like the mayor and all the good citizens wanted. And then all of a sudden he had, according to Q, this milk cart guy came out with his horse and like almost ran over the Mercedes Benz and, and he, he, he whooped it up at the guy, provoking him, and then he took off. And, uh, and the, the mayor was really mad. He's like, you, you got to chase him. You got to get him. And he's like, sorry, sir. Speed limit, 3.5. And the mayor's like, no, you got to get him. And so eventually he was able to convince Mercedes to speed up to the guy. And then they, after that, they changed the speed limit so that he could sell his cars. But, you know, it was only when it affected him personally, you know, the mayor the mayor's happy to sit in his cushy chair and issue, you know, all these decrees. But when he saw what it meant practically, then he was willing to change. And, you know, God will bring uh, the trials of living in our life sometimes just to get our attention. And he's so gracious that way. He's so loving. So is God trying to get your attention? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your loving rebuke. Thank you for the faithful wounds of a holy God who loves us and exhorts us. Thank you for faithful friends who attempt to reach us lovingly. Uh, yeah, Lord, we also realize that you'll put a few of those irritated people in our lives who, uh, who may rebuke us, uh, not out of any true love, 
Uh, and Lord, we know that you use that as well. But Lord, help us not to be those people. And help us as well. Help us to see how you're such a loving God that we would break up our fallow ground, that we would start fresh, and that that is your challenge. So that means that you invite us to do that. That means you give us the chance at fresh starts. And we thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.